0: This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by the Charcoal Book Club. Their carefully curated selections reflect the best in contemporary photography and all for a reasonable price. And they are delivered directly to your doorstep each month. They offer free shipping to the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. It's subsidized elsewhere. It's a great way to begin or expand your photo library. Join the club at charcoalbookclub.com today and remember to use the code... The Candid Frame at checkout. Happy holidays. This is our final episode for 2023, a complicated year on so many fronts. Despite the negativity that abounds, I hope this show provided you with a positive and hopeful alternative. These conversations bring me so much joy and inspiration, a chance to connect with another human being. Those moments are are an important part of my professional and personal life that I couldn't live without. Ending the year with a photographer I admire and whom I am lucky enough to call a friend is really special. It's always an honor and a treat to sit down with Joel Meyerowitz, whose photography and words on the craft are priceless. His latest book, The Pleasure of Seeing, inspired our latest conversation. The book focuses on his early exploration and understanding of color in his work, but more importantly, it explores the importance of self-transformation as an artist. I especially appreciate that Joel kept our appointment despite recovering from a bout of COVID, which he thankfully recovered from. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame.
1: Well, congratulations on the exhibit and the book. Thanks. I really enjoyed um, looking through it. I wish I could have been at the Tate to actually see it in person. but
2: yeah, It's actually, they're hanging it today. So sometime if you do come to London, it'll be up for a whole year.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, my,
2: I was supposed to go there today at 10 o'clock this morning to help them hang it. But that's not going to happen. That's mm. long gone now.
1: Well, it's it's uh, the exhibit and the book kind of is an interesting chronicling of uh, an important aspect of your career, which was your your exploration and your deep dive into into color. So, though people have likely have heard you talk about this before on this show and elsewhere, probably is a good idea to provide uh, a brief primer for people who are new to you and your work.
2: It was the work of a young man who was basically standing up against the establishment, who were saying, oh, black and white is the art form of photography. And because I didn't know any better back then when I was 24, I thought the world's in color, so I should put color film in the camera. And when when I met that kind of resistance, and I could finally afford a second camera, I started going out trying to make pairs of pictures, not for any... External reason, but so that I could begin to see what was it about color or black and white that, you know, gave it its natural strength or, and, and in effect, prove to myself why I felt color was so important. Of course, today we don't have, that's not a, co- a question at all. People accept color comes with the phone. You have to make an effort to make it in black and white.
1: A lot of people, especially when they're younger and they're first starting, When they hear like an absolute like that, it's like if you're a serious photographer, you only shoot black and white, we'd make the choice to go, oh, I guess I should. And we'll start shooting black and white and abandon whatever inclination they may have It initially. Was it the New Yorker in you that was just like, no one's gonna tell me what I'm gonna do?
2: Yeah, it's just, you know, if I had had my doubts initially, like which should I do and looked around more, and I would have seen black and white was everywhere, maybe I would have made that step. But because I knew nothing about photography, sometimes sheer ignorance is <laughs> the, the best way forward because you do you do what your instinct tells you. And, and, you know, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing right from the beginning, but when I got that first roll of slides back, and some of them were very well exposed because I was reading a piece of paper that came in the package, you know, I'd walk around the street and it says, if the sun is, you know, behind you, you should shoot a 250 at 250th or 5.6. So I set the camera. <laughs> I just did what the paper told me. It's kind of funny, like a directional sheet, you know. But most of the pictures came out sharp and well balanced. And I, I had a few pictures that really gave me that kind of feedback right at the beginning that made me want to go out and shoot another roll. So I I feel fortunate that ignorance was my guide right at the beginning and that it pushed me to ask a larger question and finally resolve it for myself. And I try certainly black and white. I have 10 solid years of black and white shooting and I had exhibitions with the black and white work and the like, even at MoMA. So I feel that I, I navigated that territory in a in a really intimate, personal, and professional way, but ultimately the argument for color was stronger.
1: And, and the reality that at the at the time when you started, you really didn't have the means to start a dark room and make all those black and white prints. So the slides were as a an affordable and you know a practical remedy to actually see your photographs as opposed to what other people were were doing. Um, and you mentioned in the in the book about looking at your pictures through a projector, and I can't help but think that having the opportunity to experience your love uh, images large was really part of part of that sort of gestation or that development because you were able to observe your your images in a way that we can now with computers where we can enlarge an image on the screen and really take uh, a really keen assessment. Of what we'd done,
2: it meant a lot because Kodachrome is sort of the basis of Technicolor, and Technicolor was what Hollywood films were made out of, and they were always projected on screens, you know, fifty, sixty feet across, and the quality was always spectacular. So, in my in my little apartment, uh, uh, Tony Ray Jones, who was my buddy at the time both of us would sit on either side of the projector and shoot it onto the wall. And the wall was two to three feet. So we could get a big image and really begin to look in all the corners and see the layered content, the things that came in behind the subject that you actually thought you were making a picture of. There were these other things that became accidental gems in a way. And in I believe that by projecting my images big like that, I was able to expand my understanding of what provided the content in the photograph. That it isn't always the thing that you put in the center of the frame, but it was the subsidiary elements around the frame that put pressure on it. And that helped me understand my own tendencies The more I photographed, the more I began to see that I didn't have to put things in the center, that I could take that the energy of the immediate subject and shove it to the side and let the rest of the world play on the frame. And I think that opened me up to chance and accident in a way that allowed my pictures to have multiple points of interest in them right from the beginning. And, and, of course, over time, that became the strength that I thought my photographs were being directed at, was how many different things can you contain in the frame mm. and still keep the picture elastic and interesting rather than shooting the bullseye into the target in the center. So it became philosophy. In other words, this using use of color enlarged the scope of my understanding in ways that I couldn't quite be sure of at the beginning but instinct prevailed and I began to develop that idea of more than one resource in the frame and I, you, know, I, you have to give it to yourself when you're an innocent younger artist that sometimes you stumble on you know, a path for yourself and if you follow that with a kind of blind fortitude <laughs> you may really discover that the thing you you're actually are
1: about. Well, I I'm I'm grateful for that because I I saw you speak I think a couple of months ago and you discussed that aspect of moving away from sort of the what Brisson called the decisive moment or some sort of central focal point within the image and I had been kind of stuck in my own photography and when I heard you say that I was just like ooh and I and I've been looking at your work forever you know, and I had seen that, but then when you explained it, it just kind of crystallized everything. And and for the last several months, I've been following following suit, and with the whole idea of of instead of trying to make as clean as images as possible, I'm throwing in as much as I can to the point that I think it's going to completely fall apart. And as and it's been such fun to rediscover the world around me, especially the ones that are very familiar, that I've photographed often with a whole new set of eyes. Because then it's, it's, it's fantastic. I'm using the 35 millimeter focal length and it's just like, okay, how much more, <laughs> how much more? It's like playing, uh well, Zenga is kind of the reverse. You're pulling stuff up, yeah. Jenga, and it falls apart. Yeah. But it, there's probably a game where you put more and more and more before the tower completely collapses.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's, it's a wonderful way of 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 seeing and playing on the street.
2: I, I, I cannot disagree, of course, because I I believe in it, but when when I started to push for that kind of overall sort of unified seeing, it was because I tired of getting the thing I wanted in the center of the frame. And it became like a a rote response, you always just blast it into the center. And so I I had to force myself, when, when something matured in front of me in a split second, I had to force myself to drive it off center to see what else could sustain my interest. So the game was, if this interesting thing, which would normally go in the center, if I can push it off somewhere else, it will still be important because it's, it's the thing that's building towards a kind of high energy for the moment. And so by adding something else, it, it goes back to being more like real life, which is chaotic and, and multifaceted. And there are usually several events happening in the field in front of you. So I thought, I'm gonna just test this premise as hard as I can. And yes, I may lose some, some picture moments, but maybe I'll gain something about elasticity and range and 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 in fact develop a greater expressive range so that the pictures I make are taking place within the texture of the whole field so that anyone that sees it will not just see the isolated catch but they'll see what it looked like to be alive in you know 2020 20, three on the streets of LA. Whatever. You you get all that other context in there.
1: There's a there's a picture that you mentioned in the book that you're 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 famous for, which I think is and unfortunately I don't have the, the PDF open right now, but you probably know the picture of that street scene where you have a a, a guy with a hat in the lower right hand corner, you've got the signage uh, of the I think Midtown or maybe Times Square in the in the background. You got a new stand in the lower left hand corner. And that's an yeah. image, that's a, an example of that. And I, I, after going through the book, I looked at that image for a long time and I realized that the what you just described is present there, but the connective tissue, the fiber underneath that picture and why it works as well as it does is the color. And not just the presence of color, but there's a rhythm of color. There's a repetition of yellow, of reds, of blues, throughout and they sort of help sort of provide not necessarily the foundation of the color but it's the thing that keeps it all together because when I tried to imagine it as a black and white photograph I didn't think it would it would work.
2: There would be so many grays and such a cacophony of grays that it would all blend together. There wouldn't be a you would then start to look for the decisive moment in the picture, something that would make the photograph be to be of interest. But because this is in color, the, the tapestry like feeling of overall is it centers you in the place itself. You, you have, I, for me, I know that picture so well. I feel like I'm in this incredibly vital, lively, noisy environment in the heart of New York City, and the picture is about all of that, all of that honking and hooting and, you know, whistling and sounds. That the noise of the picture, even though it's a silent, still photograph, that noise is embedded in the, in the rhythms of the picture. And You know, one has to sacrifice at least speaking for myself, I had to sacrifice something that I thought I knew how to do well, Mm. which was to capture a, a rising moment in the flux of life, but capture that rising moment in the frame because I had practiced being invisible. I practiced being in the right place at the right time. Years and years of trying, working out on the street to get my chops. And so to give that up and step Back in space from the eight feet I normally worked at to like fifteen feet, so that I could have the full depth of the field of the photograph. That that was giving up a lot. And I remember when when I showed the work to my two closest friends at the time, which was Gary Winogrand and Todd Papenjoy, they both were kind of like shoulder shrugging a little mm-hmm. bit, like yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> and, and I remember Todd saying. You know, you know, like you're losing your touch. <laughs> and, and, you know, when you have close friends and you show them your work, you don't always expect to have praise, but some understanding of what you're, what you're opening yourself to. But, it, uh, I mean, Todd didn't shoot color. Gary, Gary shot color and he was familiar with it, but he certainly chose black and white as his primary voice, as did Todd. But I was the one who was trying to make it my primary voice. You know, when you, when you set out on that kind of mission, you don't want anything to get in your way. You've got to keep pushing and pushing, because if you don't believe in it yourself, you know, you'll, never, you'll, never, you'll never climb that mountain. You've got to believe it. You can get to the top, and the, the, uh, the, the vision from up there is going to be clarifying in some really important personal way.
1: A photographer, Sean Tucker, who, who runs a popular YouTube channel, had a video, uh, just recently about basically why people don't, may not like your picture. And it was about the, the, the idea that as you grow as a photographer, you start doing things that are more challenging, that are, are more than the obvious, quality good photograph that gets all those likes on social media, that you'll get less people liking those photographs. Even though they reflect your growth,
2: right,
1: and that you have to—that part of letting go of things that you do well—is—is um, is multifaceted. And one level, you have to give up something that you know that you can do well, that you can create—you know—create great solace from when you go out and shoot and go, I, I produce something good. And it's now, especially in the age of you know the Instagram, letting go of people. Um, understanding and liking what you're doing. And then, like you just said, you have to be completely committed to your own growth.
2: Well, you know, who, are you, who are you going to listen to? You're going to, listen, you're going to just try for a few likes on, on your phone, or you're going to listen to the big like from your heart and mind. And if you're going to let the audience define what you like, you're going to be, be lowering your standards to a kind of generic way. Our job as artists is to lead and to show people what is capable in the medium to, to a higher degree to make them, them give up their lower standards for an aspirational thing about a more interesting way of photographing and seeing. If we've just followed them, every picture would be a bullseye.
1: You said in the book, when, the book consists of pairs of images, one shot in black and white, one shot in color. And it it seems like you were trying to convince the greater photo community that there was a validity to color. Um, Was that as much uh, a confirmation of your belief to yourself when you were doing that?
2: What I was really trying to prove by making color and black and white pairs as close as I could to the very moment of instinct was for myself first to see how does each of these films render what's in front of the camera? Because John Sharkovsky, who was the head of MoMA Photography, used to say that all a camera does is describe what's in front of it when the photographer presses the shutter release. And that description was what photography was about. And when I heard that as a young person, I w- allowed myself to misread that And say to myself, well, if description is what photography is about, then a black and white picture doesn't describe everything. It's lacking the color. You can't, you don't know what that skin tone is. You don't know what that dress is. There's a a picture of two women in the book who are bridesmaids at at a wedding. And in the black and white version, they both have on what looks like white dresses and white veils. But when you see them in color, one has on a pink one or a rosy one, and the other one has a yellow one on, and and they're, they're, they're um, both African American women and, and their skin tones are different colors and their mouths are incredibly fruity, beautiful, and each one has a different lipstick on. All of that human heat and content disappeared in the black and white photograph. They seemed generic, like they were the same. And, and the, it seems to me that by misreading what John Charkovsky said, it, it, it gave me a key to opening my own understanding. And you know, this is an interesting uh, uh, part of the concept. I wasn't trying to make one picture better than the other. I was just trying to get the incident to be as equally described as possible. And then afterwards, I would look at the picture to see w- which one was better and for what reason. And secondarily, what does color do to the image that the black and white doesn't do? So I I was looking to make strong photographs, but I was also looking to understand the range of additional information that color brought to the, you know, to the effort. And, and and what was further, if I just can continue for a moment, every time I stepped out onto the street or I changed my direction, I adjusted both cameras so that I had the right exposure. And there were some times when I didn't know which camera was which, because there were two Leicas, one would be in my hand and the other on the shoulder. But then sometimes I took the the one on my shoulder and threw it on the other shoulder. I took the one on my shoulder off and I might not my hand. And so after a while, I I often didn't know which camera was which. Until I looked at the back later on where I had set a little note saying this is color, this is black and white. But only by setting the ASA on the back of the like of this, there used to be that dial. Anyway, it, it just allowed me the freedom to make the photograph and not be trying to prime the pump so that the color would be better. I wanted the argument to be as fresh and understated as possible so that chance would give me the pictures and then afterwards I would learn from the proof. Each picture's a proof in a way. So it, it was as, as scientific as I could make it for myself so that I wasn't always influencing the ultimate decision.
1: The images are in color, but the images aren't just about the color, no, right? right. So, so in terms, do you think that, the, especially those early photographs, do you think that it, it was, the images are like that because you were both more drawn initially to the theater or the street? And those elements, and that if color was present, you kind of understood its relationship to, to the moment, as opposed to just creating images where color were the heart of the image.
2: Yes, the, the former. Um, it, it wasn't, I, I had gone somewhat past that point in my own development where a piece of hot color was the story or the subject. In a way, I, I uh, you know, I think when you're very young and you start to work, you you light up. And something is a, a real buzz, a pop of color or something extreme or exaggerated. It's easy to be the, the fish leaping for whatever is glowing on the, on the fish hook and, you know, take a bite of it. Mm-hmm. I think after... A few years of that, one can begin to sort of settle down and find a way of integrating your vision and your sense of what the street really is providing. Because the street is like an instruction manual. It's always been, for me, something that taught me about life, about the way human beings live. I think of myself as a humanist photographer and as sort of a generalist at the same time, because... So many things interest me. It's, it's, it's not like, you know, I'm not interested just in fashion or in the landscape or in still life. Or in I'm interested in the way we live when we're in big urban centers, in the crowded human hive of the city, and the way we live when we're not in those centers. How do we comport ourselves in, in nature, in the countryside? This... this you know, we're inhabitants of this planet, and we've built it to, uh, to give us some kind of sanctuary. And so I look into the sanctuary to see how the inhabitants are living there. They're crazy in there. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and they're predictable. The thing is, human beings do the same thing over and over and over again, no matter where you are, no matter what culture you come from, people on the street, you know, talk to each other, try to entice each other, they eat, they drink, they walk, they run, they tie their shoes, they make their phone calls, they do business. All the signs and symbols in the hand gestures and the facial gestures are fairly close across across the world. I mean, there are some cultures in which things are slightly unfamiliar to Westerners, let's say. But in general, There is such a kind of ubiquity of engagement around the world that you can pretty much feel you're getting the message wherever you are, and and so you know that's enough of a stimulus for me to be out on the street in any culture and think about, well, you know, look look at the look how fast the pace is, or how come they all walk you know in the center of the sidewalk here why do they Why do they wait at the light instead of crossing against in the traffic like New York is crossing the traffic? <laughs> you know, if <laughs> if you're in Tokyo, everybody's waiting for the little ding dong to make its sounds. So you can go across, and so you get different kind of human clusters and relationships within within those clusters. And so, I guess I've always just tried to pick up on the, the natural rhythms of humankind, wherever I find myself. And they're funny. At <laughs> they, yeah. least they seem, their, their absurdity can be funny.
1: When when you started working with the larger format, um, especially for the work that's largely known as the Cape Light series, um, how did working with the larger negative, if at all,
2: um, lead you to use color in... in in a different way, if at all. It it was a uh, a huge leap of faith. The picture we were talking about a few minutes ago about Times Square with all the overall color everywhere and the, the kind of buzz of it, that picture was the seminal picture that pushed me to the eight by 10, truthfully. Um, when I arrived at that, uh, and that's not the only picture from that kind of point of view, um, I, I just knew that if I wanted to make prints that were four, six, eight feet across, and, and I did, at a time when people weren't making large prints because there was nobody was buying them, there were very few galleries in New York City in 1976 when I made that picture, there was only one photo gallery called Witkin. So photography wasn't on the consumer radar at all as an object that you would buy and collect. So I wasn't thinking about selling anything. I was thinking about wanting to make prints of a huge scale because the, the 8x10 camera would give me that ability to do it. And so when I first started with that on Cape Con. The first shock was that when I set the camera up and I looked in it, the picture was upside down and backwards. Oh my God, how am I gonna navigate this? I'm used to seeing the world right side up, looking in the viewfinder. Um, but once I put the dark cloth over my head and got into that glass, that eight by 10 inch piece of glass, it was like being in a theater almost like when I was younger and projecting my slides on the wall and looking all over the frame. Mm, Yeah. Now I was looking all over the frame, except when I took my head out under the dark cloth, the frame was infinite. It was as big as the world. So, um, it, it gave me a, a sense that I was connecting to the complexity of the, all of it. Even if I was working in a place with the simplicity of Cape Cod, where there was water and horizon line and sky and small buildings near the edge of the water, <laughs> it was really, Cape Cod was quite a humble place. One of the oldest communities in America. The pilgrims first touched down on the very tip of Cape Cod before they sailed across to Plymouth. And they spent a few months there, you know, dying of the diseases that they had from the, the voyage over. Uh, and th- then they sailed across to a more hospitable harbor on the other side of the bay. But that's, that's an aside. So the simplicity of the structures that I was photographing were so finely described on, on the screen that I was immediately taken in by it. I felt like I was seeing, even from great distances, I was seeing all the details that were there. And I knew that I could easily uh, enlarge these to sizes never before printed, in, in, at least in my experience. And so I think I carried around a projection in, in my mind's eye, every day that I was out photographing, when I looked on the back of the camera screen and saw the image, I had this feeling of monumentality, of a kind of effortless monumentality. And, I don't know, it, it, it nurtured me in a way. I had the security that no matter what I photographed, the acuity of the lens would hold on to all of that information in ways that would deliver a subtle but powerful description of everything that was there. Atmosphere, you know, Mm -hmm. even the temperature of the day, the the, the slant of the light, the oncoming uh, of of dusk. These were... uh, sort of emotional states of being as the day changes and and you have the time to look into the change that's happening in front of you because with this kind of camera you are truly recording time as an element in the picture on the street when i was using a leica i was working at 2/50th of a second so although it's time it's it's almost imperceptible you know it's like yeah. it's like the, a blink—it's faster than a blink, because a blink is like the sixtieth of a second. But the camera winking at two-fiftieth or higher is is really fast. But with the view camera, it was seconds. I was working in the, in the temporal mode of seconds, sometimes even minutes, and things change. I mean, standing alongside that camera, which I I came to look upon as if it was my faithful recorder like my faithful dog it was sitting there alongside of me and if i opened it up for a minute and just stood alongside of it it would see everything and it would drink in that minute's worth of of light and land it on the film in a way that brought with it all the color and the sensitivity of the atmosphere and so i had a i had a very different connection to the instrument I, I felt joined to it in a way that was more like a classical musician playing the cello rather than a jazz guy on the trumpet riffing on something improvisational so what I got from that it's, it's almost it's, it's almost hard to say I mean I have i have said like I got this connection to time that really changed my life.
0: The Charcoal Book Club is back as a sponsor and wants to share a special event coming in 2024. The Chico Review is an annual event that gathers photographers to celebrate their love for photography. It's more than just an opportunity to share your work and meet publishers and editors. It's a rare chance to be surrounded and immersed by a community that prioritizes photography and being a photographer over the latest camera review. If you have never had such an experience, mark the date and register for the event scheduled for March 17th through the 24th in Prey, Montana. Find out more by visiting chicoreview.com or charcoalbookclub.com. This winter, I'll lead my first online workshop through the Santa Fe Workshops. Serving as witness to your life a photographic practice is an intimate workshop where I guide you on using your life, your relationships and passions to inspire your photography. It's a workshop where you use who you are right now in your life to begin a unique personal project that can be the next Big step in your photographic journey. Find out more and register today by visiting SantaFeWorkshops.com or clicking on the link in the show notes or the website. And thanks to all of you who have supported the show financially throughout the year. I couldn't do it without your help. It means the world to me. If these conversations have helped you in your own photographic journey, but you have yet to contribute. You can change that today by becoming a Patreon supporter. You can contribute five, ten, twenty dollars or more a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Again, it's patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thank you.
1: When you look at the images that you saw in New York, color. Especially in the city, is often very punchy, blocky. It takes up distinctive spaces within the within the frame. When you look at the images from Cape Cod, the the color is much softer, almost like a pastel. Uh, on some occasions, yeah. right? So the the relationship of color to the scene and to the moment or to the person, if you're doing a, a portrait, is is very different from that. That you would see when you're photographing on the streets of of New York, um, were you conscious of that?
2: I became. Yeah. And how?
1: And and how? How did the way you saw and used color differ as a result of you going
2: to the larger format? I did get. I did get it really quickly because color on the streets a 35 millimeter Kodachrome. It's a very different physical uh, thing than color on a piece of sheet film. The the Kodachrome transparency was three layers of color that were made of of dyes, and they were surrounded by a black mask. And they were literally on a, a piece of emulsion that you could project light through, just like movie film. Whereas the eight by 10 negative was uh, dyes embedded in a sheet of film without a black mask. And those dyes were only activated when the film was processed. Uh, and, and then you would have to make a contact print on paper. And the, uh, the, the, you know, the negative looked mostly orange. But when it hit the paper and the light went through it, all those orange layers that had filters between them um, made a three-color, well, I guess you'd say a four-color image. So there was a... But it was softened by the fact that it didn't have that black mask. And it wasn't a positive. It was a negative. And so the, the sheer fact of its manufacture gave it a much more airy, tender, uh, dispersed tonality. And when I started making the first prints in my color darkroom, I was just, it felt like I had a butterfly's wing in my hand. It felt that fragile and that delicate and everything seemed to have atmosphere in it. And I remember the the lyrical feeling I had when I would hold these first prints up. It, It was as if it was intimate and yet expansive. I could enter it and yet I could feel the scale of it as being as big as I wanted it. And, and not losing any of its qualities as one goes up to size. So I, I, did, I did immediately learn that I was speaking a very different language, both in the making of the picture, but also in the rendering of it afterwards. There was just this incredible luminosity. I mean, you have to learn from your processes. You're, you're being instructed. By the materials and by the camera all the time on, on how to use it to its best advantage and how to express yourself to the fullest capacity that you have when you're using that medium. And, and it's possible, as I've as I learned, to use to have two different beats: the jazzy beat of the street and the small camera. And the longer tempo beat of the 8 by 10 inch camera that, you know, you have to carry it around on a huge six foot tripod. And the whole thing weighs 35 pounds. <clears throat> and your, your movement is tied to it. You can't dash with that camera into a place. You, you really have to set it up and be aware of time being part of that the uh, part of the agency of making the photograph is i mean sometimes light is going as fast as you arrive there, the light is going and you realize you only have maybe a minute left to capture this particular transition in the light. You can't just pick up the camera and go click, you've got to be really adept and acute and uh, and decisive about it. So there, there were a lot of wonderful learning curves in it that allowed me to express myself in a whole new way. I'm grateful for that.
1: How, how is digital and the way that you can capture color, render color? How do you see that particular tool?
2: Well, I'll be honest with you. I, it, it's what I do now. I don't use film any longer. I I know the attraction of it. I've I've lived through those phases, but I've been making digital photographs since 1999. And even before that, in 1994, I had the very first show of digitally printed color photographs in a world-class museum at the Art Institute of Chicago. I had made, Kodak gave me a scanner, an 18 megabyte scanner, and Fuji lent me The Fujix printer, which was a dye sublimation printer using three layers of of, uh, acetate with colors on them. So it was like a dye transfer. And they're very permanent. They haven't changed. So I, I I was really ahead of the curve. I was one of the beta sites for Photoshop in 1991. They didn't ask me to be, but I taught myself Photoshop over a summer. And I kept on writing to them and giving them... What I thought I needed from a darkroom perspective, um, and now I shoot digital only, and I use the Leica M series eleven and the S camera. And a few years ago, well, it's actually the very year that the S came out. Um, I they gave me one to work with, and I made a six foot tall print and I sliced it in half. And I had a six foot tall print in my studio made from the eight by 10 view camera. And I put them right next to each other. And I, with a loop, I looked at the pixel character, grain character, color rendition. I moved back and forth between each print. And uh, at that point, I saw that there was an imperceptible difference, barely imperceptible difference in them, and that the digital technology would only get better. And at that point, I stopped using the eight by 10. I thought to myself, time's going by. Right now, I'm 85. I don't have the time to go in the darkroom and spend weeks and months of my life in the dark room. Everything I photograph now or everything I've had digitized, I can work on my screen and produce and print out. I use HP printers. I've, I have nothing but the highest regard for them. I have great papers that I work with. I'm using platinum-based papers that are you know, barium-coded, but they're used in platinum printing, except they're good for their Canson papers, and they're good for inkjet printing. My, my show at the Tate, all the work I printed in the show, 41 prints, are all on this, on this platinum paper, which is, they're, they're astonishing. And they have 200-year life. So, in a way, all of the assets of digital technology um, have come around to, I don't know, to making photography easier. And I don't see any loss in the mystery. You know, I used to love the mystery of watching the print come up in the tray in the dark room. Um, but I had that. I, I lived with it. I loved it. And so now I have a different kind of mystery, which is just sit in front of the screen and make that picture as big as I want to. And I could handle opening up the shadows under somebody's neck or, you know, burning in a little something where the light is too bright. I can do that all in Photoshop so effortlessly that the, I know if Ansel Adams was alive today, he would he would be in Photoshop because oh, you know, he worked yeah. so hard on those pictures, painting out areas using you know kind of materials to to stop the light from coming in different parts of the uh, of the negative, and he'd scrape that off and. Then, <laughs> you know, burn something else. It was a labor intensive. So I'm, I'm completely digital and completely in, lo- in love with it. Yeah. But I don't expect everybody to feel that way. But, you know, at 85, time's running out. And I have to use my time as wisely as I can.
1: It's Digital provides you so much greater control than you ever had with crumb. Because Photogram had a very narrow dynamic range and you had to expose for the highlights pretty much. And it gave you what it gave you. Um, Now with digital, you have a lot of control when you're shooting raw on the camera. And then you are, when you're printing it, your choice of printer, the choice of paper, um, all of those things will render the color of the scene very, very differently. Um, when you are considering your photographs, especially with the destination of the print, are you seeing, when you're evaluating the color and making your adjustments, are you you trying to be true to the moment that you witnessed, or are you making choices based on your intent of what you want that print to look like?
2: When I was shooting 8x10, I used to take the piece of white cardboard that was in every box of, of film, and use that as my note card. And every single image I made, I wrote down the holder number, the date, and then I would try to describe the content of the image. Looking for the neutral, I'd look at the the lower part of a cloud because the cloud is a mixing chamber, and usually if it's sunny above, the gray at the bottom of the cloud is your best neutral you can get. Or I would look for neutrals within the image. And uh, I made comments to myself about the colors that I was perceiving in all of these different parts of the frame so that when I was in the darkroom, I actually could refer to my sheet and make prints that were true to the description that I experienced when I was there. I feel the same way about shooting digital color, although I don't often write down all the colors now. My my monitors are calibrated and my my I, I look at what the camera produces and I tend to work slightly flatter in general. I'm not someone who loves big contrast because I've observed the world long enough to see that there isn't often strong contrast out there. You can always see into the shadows. I mean unless it's at night. But if you're standing around in almost any kind of daylight and you look with your human eye into the shadow, it all opens up. And as soon as you look towards the brighter thing, your eye stops down. So I have an understanding between the highlight and the shadow. And I I know, if I can make it the information in the shadows be described, that my picture will have a kind of flatness to it. It isn't a dull flatness. It's a sort of rendered, you know, curve that gives me a beautiful uh, highlight to shadow uh, tonality. You know, I look, I look at that curve to see if I can maintain the fullness of information in it. Because th- I, I just believe in that. And I'm, any print that I have made for an exhibition or. A book I've either made myself and then I give that print to the printer if they're making a six foot tall print and they have to follow my master so that there's no, there's no doubt about what, what the picture should look like. You know, that way I feel like I'm being true to, yeah, I'm being true to, to myself and my observations.
1: Yeah, you mentioned in the in the, um, conversation we had earlier that you're selling your apartment in New York that you've lived in for quite a long time and you're going through the process of, you know, packing things up and storing them and shipping them. And such transitions are always really poignant ones, especially when you've been in a space for a long time. Um, what's that experience been like and what insights have you gained about Yourself, your life, your work as a result of doing all that?
2: It's a, it's a, lovely, a lovely, tender question. Because I was almost 60 years in that apartment, I raised my children there, I had black like and white doctrine, color doctrine, second lives, or all kinds of things in there. But because I'm living here in Europe now, and my wife is English. Um, I thought, well, why are we keeping this apartment in New York? Sure, my archive and studio and my assistants are there, but shouldn't somebody else enjoy that apartment now, another family, instead of me holding on to that space? So it was time to sell it, and I'll move everything to a commercial space in Manhattan that will house the archive, and maybe it will be a foundation someday, or I don't know what. But going back last month and spending a month going through untold numbers of boxes, I didn't get through the whole archive because it was too much, but I got through quite, a, I would say more than a third. And I saw that there were pictures that had failed over the, over the 40 plus years of color and that there was no reason to hold on to them any longer. Because when I was in the darkroom, I never threw anything away. I I saved all the workbooks and everything because I wanted to see how I moved from point A to B to C to D to the final. So I could let go of those pictures that were really, you know, faulty first steps. I didn't have to hold on to them any longer. And that's a practical thing too because if I were to die, you know, before I had organized everything, the government would come in and would attribute value to all those pieces of paper, my kids would be taxed. So better to get it out of the uh, system now. And at the same time, I was also saying goodbye to pictures that I probably won't hold in my hand and look at again, because I I did save thousands of pictures. And I signed them too, so that they're all ready to be used for, let's call it a foundation at some point in the future. So it was, a, it was a tender goodbye. And I really, you know, I held these fragile prints in my hands and saw the, the beauty that existed in them. I saw the, the urgency of my younger life. It was a real opportunity for reflection and, and connection. Even though I have them all scattered and I have the files for them. The scans are stronger, fresher, kind of digital files, while these things are the prints themselves that were the the authentic voice of the film against the print and processing it one one at a time so that they, they manifested the best quality. What astonished me is I would see sometimes I would have eight or ten, maybe more, prints of the same image. And I, I, I numbered my prints on the back so I could see what the first print was and what the tenth print was to see how the subtle, and I had all the, the color pack changes that I put on. So I could see my own progression slowly and surely taking away a point of magenta, or adding a point of yellow. <laughs> just to see how demanding I was at the time to get it absolutely right. I don't care if it took me 10 prints. There was a sense of what was the best uh, expression of that particular image. And so that was, that was a pretty powerful thing to me. I saw that I didn't easily uh, accept something. I just made that next one.
1: Do you find that you're just as demanding now as you were then, or have you?
2: I am, but, but the result is more immediate. You know, I uh, My printers are, my my monitors are calibrated, my screen is calibrated, my, my printer is calibrated. And uh, what I see on the screen is pretty much what I get. Nonetheless, you know, sometimes it comes out and I think, mm, it's a little heavier than it should be. You know, or a little lighter than it should be. And it gives me an opportunity to make another print. And just finesse it a little bit. Like I say, it's not about exaggeration. It's trying to find the balance so that all the harmonies are, are visible. That there's, there's this transforming three-dimensional nature, even urban nature. Onto a two-dimensional surface requires a lot of uh, a lot of value testing. I have to keep looking at it and say, Does that building feel? Does that stone feel weighty like that? Isn't the light on that stone more delicate and luminous? So I go back and I maybe take a little bit of time off of it so that it you know, gives me a less of a second less or something like that in the print. You know what I mean? In terms of in terms of weight of something. So I'm I, I am trying to find the closest description to what it was that I photographed. And often with when I'm printing from my 35 millimeters, I have my original codacron, which on a light box in front of me with a big loop. So I examined the original codicil to see for sure what my, what my scan is giving me. It's, it's very determined. And I, I think Tate wants to walk me through the exhibition that she's hanging, but I will, um, I'll call her back when we're finished.
1: Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer. For our listeners to discover and explore, and it could be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why?
2: I, would, I, I know a lot of photographers now. I'm doing a new book about contemporary street photography for a publisher here in London. And what I've done is I've selected seven photographers that I know younger photographers and I've asked each of them to pick seven people so it's like an umbrella
1: Mm, okay
2: I've I'm I'm a little lazy too and I've chosen (laughs) so that they could then fan it out and that way I thought we might be fairer to everyone and uh and have a different range uh, and values and each of them will write a short essay about each of the photographers I'm. I, do you know Gus Powell? Oh yeah, you've spoken to yeah, Gus. we've spoken. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he's he's wonderful. Do you know Melissa O'Shaughnessy?
1: Yes, I know Melissa. Okay.
2: Do you know uh, Brian Carlson?
1: No, I don't think I
2: do. So Brian is 28 years old. He works in my studio. He did a book with They Might Be Giants last year, and he was nominated for a Grammy. No, for... What is the music award? Is it a Grammy? Yeah, the Grammys. Uh His book was nominated for a Grammy. And Brian is a remarkably uh, eloquent speaker. He's got a really good grasp of language. He's present in the... So, I'll start again a little bit. I would like to suggest Brian Carson because he's articulate and verbal he's he's one of these guys who is hungry to be out on the street he's out there every day he often walks from Bushwick in Brooklyn into the upper west side of Manhattan just so he can photograph instead of riding the subway he's a he's got a very playful idea about what constitutes imagery and he's deeply involved in the interconnectedness of images, how one thing aligns with another and creates a kind of riff, so that you have to look at three, four, five images together to get, to get some kind of context. He might be, he might be fun for you to, uh, to talk with, because, because as I say, he is young and he's hungry and uh I think that makes him very appealing, and he's one of the people that I've chosen to be a selector
1: well, thank you for that and thank you for your time joe i have to I have to tell you you've been um you know a real treasure um for me personally um I've learned so much from you but i uh, but I'm a great beyond your work I'm just uh, a great admirer of your walk through life and how you embrace it, uh, how you appreciate it, and how you use all of yourself to honor it and uh, it's something that i I increasingly try to emulate as much as I can so thank you for your 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 gifts as a photographer but also as a person and if I can say it, a friend. So thank
2: you. Thank you so yeah. much. You're welcome. And I do consider you a friend. We've known each other 20 years at least. And, um, I, I admire and honor you too, your, your way of entering the media in the purely conversational mode, but also in your own photographs. It shows your own profound understanding of it. I too treasure that. Thank you, Barry.
0: Thanks to Joel for joining us. Learn more about Joel by visiting joelmeyerwitz.com. And if you're a fan of our work, you can write reviews on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts and share a favorite episode on social networks, be it X, formerly Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Remember to use the hashtag Lee Frame. You can also support us financially by contributing via PayPal or Patreon. We've relaunched our newsletter. If you want to receive updates on everything related to TCF, like book recommendations or announcements for special events and workshops, please sign up by visiting our website. And if you can't find every show episode on whatever service you use to listen to podcasts, download the Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.